0: You can learn more about student visionaries of the year or even nominate a student at LLS.org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Bela and Boris.
1: Once upon a time, many, many years ago, I am Dracula. It's a lie! Oh, 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 In the name of God! Now oh, I know what it feels like to be God. I was greater than any real vampire. Sure, sure. Awake. Have I been asleep? She hates me. My gosh. A race of atomic supermen which will conquer the world. <laughs> the phone is dead. Even the phone is dead. We belong dead.
0: Last week we explored Bela Lugosi's star-making role as Dracula in the 1931 film Dracula and the rest of his career spent playing vampires. Today, we're going to talk about how Boris Karloff became Frankenstein's monster and how this role impacted the rest of his career. Karloff's story is different from Lugosi's. The typecasting he faced was much less limiting and severe. Today, we're going to focus on the films that either involved Frankenstein or had Karloff playing a character in dialogue in some way with his signature monster. Then, next week, we'll backtrack a bit to talk about the films in which Bela and Boris appeared together, usually as antagonists. For now, join us, won't you? for the story of Boris and the Monsters. British director James Whale had made a name for himself in the early days of sound cinema as a deft handler of actors and dialogue. His breakthrough came in his film adaptation of a World War I play he had directed in England, Journey's End, which led to Universal, hiring him to direct the film of another play, Waterloo Bridge. While that movie was still in production, the Lemleys were impressed enough with Whale that Junior, who had an inherent adulation of foreign directors, began considering him for his pet project, Frankenstein. As we discussed last week, the first director assigned to Frankenstein was Robert Florey, who wrote the film's original treatment, condensing Mary Shelley's novel, and then he adapted his treatment into a screenplay and directed a test reel featuring Lugosi in makeup. But Universal moved Flory onto Murders in the Rue Morgue and rewrote his screenplay, stripping his credits, after James Whale agreed to direct Frankenstein. Once Whale took the job, any chance of Bela Lugosi playing the monster vanished. Whale believed the monster needed to be played by an actor that was more, as he put it, likable. Whale believed that Lugosi had the ability to be truly frightening. But Frankenstein's monster was not just scary. He was also scared, and Whale wanted an actor that could do both. That casting was easier said than done, and while every other part in the film was cast, a vacancy remained for the monster. Boris Karloff had dozens of film credits by 1930, but his name wouldn't have been recognizable to anyone other than the most eagle-eyed credits watchers. As a character actor in early 30s Hollywood, He mostly played supporting parts as crooks in gangster movies or donned degrees of brown or yellow face to play ethnic villains. Every step forward, such as a plum role as a muckraking journalist posing as a man of the cloth in Mervyn Leroy's five-star final, would be followed by a step back or sideways. In the Gloria Swanson romance, Tonight or Never?, released three weeks after Frankenstein, Karloff played a waiter. The standard story of how Boris Karloff was cast as Frankenstein's monster holds that in the Universal Studios commissary, Whale spotted the actor, who was on the lot filming the supporting male part in a crime programmer called Graft, and had an assistant ask Karloff if he would come sit with the director for a cup of coffee. Soon thereafter, Karloff was asked to test to play the monster in Frankenstein. Another story, told by David Lewis, who was Whale's boyfriend at the time, holds that Lewis saw Karloff in the Howard Hawks film version of The Criminal Code and recommended him to Whale. There's a scene in Hawks's film in which Karloff's character wordlessly stalks and corners a petrified prison inmate. As filmed by Hawks, Karloff's body looks huge, and though we mostly only see him from behind, he's absolutely terrifying. Karloff performed his screen test in full makeup, designed and applied by Jack Pierce, a former baseball player turned makeup artist. This was a grueling process, but Karloff was game. He voluntarily removed a dental bridge to make one side of his face look more sunken, and he asked Pierce to do something to deaden the look of his eyes. Pierce's solution was to rub Mortician's wax on his eyelids. The wax didn't do the job. Karloff's expressive eyes shone out from his sunken face and grabbed the Lemleys, who realized that with Karloff, they'd have a monster who convincingly lashed out because he himself was so badly suffering. He got the part. Karloff was happy to have a job, though of course he understood that this job was riskier than most. As Karloff reportedly confided to Edward Sloan, the actor who played Van Helsing in Dracula and the doctor's mentor in Frankenstein,
2: This will probably kill my career. That is, if anyone recognizes me.
0: But of course... He was wrong. Frankenstein would make his career, and it would change not just his life, but that of Bela Lugosi's, too. Though most histories have suggested that Lugosi, as we discussed last week, chose not to play Frankenstein's monster, and that this was a short-sighted bad decision made largely out of vanity that would backfire for him there are some different accounts for why Lugosi didn't play the role. Some writers believe that Universal allowed Lugosi to save face by claiming that he didn't want the part, although the claims that he had turned it down for lack of lines didn't exactly make him look good. What does seem clear is that Whale didn't want to work with Lugosi and that he was right to think that Bela was not right for this part. Lugosi was better casting for the mad Darwinist in Murders in the Rue Morgue, the sophisticated intellectual driven to the dark side by the possibilities of science. And Karloff was better casting for the inarticulate but tortured soul, trapped within the cobbled together hunks of flesh. The monster's makeup and costume took five hours every morning to apply. Karloff's suit was padded with quilting and had a steel rod sewn in where it would touch his spine. There was more steel in the legs of his pants and lifts in his boots to exaggerate Karloff's height of just under six feet, making him to appear to be almost a foot taller than he would naturally stand. He wore a square-shaped prosthetic on the top of his head to give the illusion that his skull had been sawed off and sewn back on. Bolts were attached to the side of his head. This is where Dr. Frankenstein attached the electrical clamps to reanimate his creation. But the permanent presence of them on the walking monster hammered home the film's theme of the unsettling intrusion of science onto nature. Finally, every surface of Karloff's skin that was visible was painted not just with hideous scars to suggest mismatched parts that had been sewn together clumsily, but also green paint, which photographed in black and white as though his skin was slightly decomposed, even as it appeared to be alive. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So, do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/remember. netsuite.com/remember. netsuite slash remember. Frankenstein was filmed in late summer, and this get-up was unbearably hot for Karloff to wear. On breaks, he'd return to his dressing room and undress, and his underwear would be soaked with sweat. This wasn't the extent of Karloff's suffering on the movie. He had no stunt double... And so he had to do all of the monsters in human feats himself, including throwing a small girl into a lake and carrying actor Colin Clive, who played Dr. Frankenstein, up a hilltop set. And Karloff had to do each of these things through multiple takes. By the time the shoot was finished, he had lost 25 pounds. Shoot days regularly stretched to 16 hours, not including the time Karloff had to allow for before and after shooting to apply and take off his makeup. Pushed to the brink, he ultimately filed a complaint with the Academy, which, in absence of a Hollywood Screen Actors Union, was the only recourse for an actor forced to work more than a standard 12 hours at a time. This was an extraordinary thing to do for an actor who was not famous, who the system believed should've been happy just to have the work. Karloff's look in full makeup and costume was so grotesque in person that the elder Carl Lemley reportedly insisted that Karloff walk around the universal lot with a veil over his head so as not to scare secretaries who might be pregnant. This was likely just another of Lemley's publicity stunts. It was certainly in keeping with the prologue attached to the movie in which actor Van Sloan, claiming to represent Carl Lemly, essentially gave the audience the 1931 version of a trigger warning in advance of the film to come.
1: Mr. Carl Lemly feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to uh, We've warned you.
0: This prologue was added after patrons were so disturbed by a test screening that many walked out. But it also served as a kind of dare to the audience to stay, to prove themselves tough enough to withstand the greatest horrors yet put on screen. Frankenstein tells the story of the titular doctor a mad scientist who has gone AWOL on his family and his fiancée, in order to hide out in a tower and conduct experiments. These experiments involve robbing graves and hanging out around the sites of executions in order to amass stray body parts, out of which he will build a man into whose head he will drop a preserved brain. With the help of the electricity he harnesses through a lightning storm, Frankenstein will bring his creation to life. Frankenstein's worried loved ones catch up with him just as his plan is coming together. What none of them know, including the doctor, is that the brain that Frankenstein's assistant Fritz stole and inserted into the creature's skull previously belonged to a serial killer. They all watch... As the doctor raises his creation on a platform up to the top of the tower to electrocute the cobbled together corpse he lowers the platform and Karloff playing the creation wiggles his fingers it's moving.
1: It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Oh, in the name of God! Now oh, I know what it feels like to be
0: God! Oh. Whale introduced the fully functional monster with four shots, cut in quick succession. In long shot, Karloff backed through a door. In medium shot, he turns to face the camera. Then come two quick shots. One a close-up on the monster's face, then an infinitesimally short, extreme close-up. Though Karloff's eyes are not isolated with light and shadow in these shots the way Lugosi's were as Dracula, they dominate your impression of Karloff as the monster. His pupils rolling back in his head, more white showing than dark, Convey that the mere effort to live is an incredible hardship. With these shots, Whale makes sure that the viewer is simultaneously horrified by the monster and sympathetic to him. Dr. Frankenstein's endeavor was painted as dangerous, law and ethic breaking, and just plain nuts before the monster walked. So meticulously does Whale break down the folly of not even trying to resurrect a man, but instead bring to life a literal exquisite corpse collaged together out of multiple men, that it's no surprise that as soon as the monster lives, he resists life with every breath and fights the humans who created him and who essentially imprison him. What is a surprise is that the viewer understands that in a sense, the monster is the victim and that we're able to feel a complicated mixture of horror and empathy when he accidentally kills Maria, a little girl who befriends him. Even after the success of Dracula, Carl Lemley Sr. thought his son was a fool to keep investing in scary movies. The father hadn't wanted the son to make Frankenstein at all, I don't believe in horror pictures, he said. It's morbid. People don't want that sort of thing. Frankenstein also was considered a bigger gamble than Dracula because the source novel was older and the general public was less familiar with the premise and the specifics of the story. Lemley Jr. asked his father to trust him. Yes, people do want that sort of thing, Jr. told his father, Just give me a chance, and I'll show you. Junior showed everyone. Frankenstein would be, by far, the biggest hit of 1931, grossing $12 million worldwide. Opening in November, nine months after Dracula, it almost wiped the memory of that hit off the map. Universal apparently hadn't realized that they were grooming a new star in Karloff they hadn't even invited him to what served as the film's premiere, an out-of-town preview in Santa Barbara. As Karloff explained,
2: I was just an unimportant freelance actor, just the animation for the monster costume.
0: But then Frankenstein became an instant smash hit, and by the end of 1931, Universal was promoting Lugosi and Karloff as their hottest stars through shared photo shoots. But each actor's fortune was directly tied to the success of their latest movies. While Universal let Lugosi's contract lapse after Murders in the Rue Morgue bombed, after Frankenstein, Karloff was signed to a star contract at Universal worth $750 a week. In Frankenstein, in order to keep the monster mysterious, Boris's name was replaced in the credits by a question mark, as befitting his instant legend status. For his next few films, Boris would be billed by his last name only. He was the one and only Karloff. Universal, in a sense, chose Karloff over Lugosi but the studio sort of whiffed by casting Karloff in the supporting part of a deaf man-servant in the next James Whale film, The Old Dark House. He got his real Frankenstein follow-up over a year after his debut as the monster in The Mummy. The Mummy has some quasi-racist or at least uncomfortably colonialist stuff in it as could probably be expected from a film made in the 1930s that puts aristocratic British people in conflict with ancient Egyptian ritual. But it's still one of my favorites of the first burst of universal horror movies. Carl Freund, cinematographer of Dracula, made his directorial debut here, and he packs an incredible minute-for-minute value into this film, which, at a running time of 73 minutes, is one of the longest of the original monster movies. Almost every scene in The Mummy has a striking image or a skin-crawling incident, and Karloff has a lot more to do in this movie than in Frankenstein. Here he plays a triple role. We first see him encrusted under a full-body bandage wrap that took twice as long as the Frankenstein monster makeup to apply, as the grotesque, mummified Imhotep. The mummy is brought to life by a naive young British archeologist who carelessly and unwittingly murmurs aloud a resurrection spell while translating a scroll found buried with the body. We see Karloff's face slowly come to life and as he takes his first breaths in hundreds of years, His bandage-wrapped hands start to stir inside his sarcophagus. We see the young scientist engrossed in his work. A mummified hand appears on his desk. He looks over, horrified, as the mummy moves out of the room. All we see is a loose bandage trailing on the floor behind the unseen walking corpse. The scientist instantly loses his mind. What's the matter, man? (laughs) For heaven's sakes, what is it? He he went
1: for a little walk. (laughs) You should have seen his face.
0: (laughs) It was Franz's stroke of genius not to show Karloff in full mummy gear walk out of the room but to instead play the horror through the archaeologist's reaction. Now, when we next see Karloff in his next incarnation, we understand how creepy it is that he's walking around as if he's a normal living man, calling himself Ardoth Bey, and pretending to be a regular old dude with unusual knowledge of ancient Egyptian ritual. For this version of the character, Karloff's makeup was dialed back to a crepe-like mask of skin, which the viewer understands to be the after look of thousands of years of primitive embalming. Finally, late in the film, we see a startlingly young-looking Karloff, with no noticeable makeup at all, in flashback as the pre-Mummy Imhotep. Up to this point, for more than half of the film, Karloff's Bay has seemed chillingly and unwaveringly evil as he uses hypnosis to lure and control Helen, a gorgeous half-British, half-Egyptian woman who Bey believes is the reincarnation of a dead princess. And then he draws Helen to his reflecting pool and shows her a flashback, revealing that Imhotep was buried alive as punishment for loving the princess so much that when she died of natural causes, he tried to resurrect her. This flashback makes the mummy as sympathetic as a dead man who uses mind control to torment an innocent young woman could possibly be. And it's another example of how Karloff can barely function as a one-dimensional villain. To not have him play the justification of the villainy would be like leaving half of his talent on the table. After The Mummy, Karloff went to England to make a film called The Ghoul. In his absence, Universal released ads claiming Karloff's next horror hit would be James Whale's adaptation of The Invisible Man. But Whale was proceeding to prepare that film without Karloff, maneuvering to cast his friend, Claude Rains, who had appeared in just one minor film over 10 years earlier. Whale got his way when Karloff learned that, instead of honoring his contract and giving him a scheduled salary raise, Universal planned to cut Karloff's salary. Karloff had already been having discussions with friends about the need for an actor's union specific to screen actors, as Actors' Equity... The Broadway union was totally ineffectual in dealing with the studios, and the Academy, which most major screen actors were members of, was created and run with the interests of the studios in mind. The giant profit margins of the studios were in part based on actors allowing themselves to be exploited. For instance, you could pay Bela Lugosi anything, because he was afraid to not take Whatever he could get. But Boris Karloff knew what he was worth, and when Universal tried to undercut his value, Karloff wasn't going to take it. He left Universal, voiding his contract and rendering him a freelancer. On June 30th, 1933, Karloff and a crew of fellow actors, none of them as well known as Frankenstein's Monster, filed articles of incorporation for the Screen Actors Guild. Karloff hosted many initial meetings of the union in his home in Toluca Lake, the bedroom community in the shadow of Warner Brothers and Universal. That summer, stars began taking Karloff's lead, leaving the Academy to join the Screen Actors Guild. Now the new guild included amongst its members James Cagney, Eddie Cantor, Groucho Marx, who served as treasurer, and vice presidents Adolf Manjou, Frederick March, and Anne Harding. The number of prominent performers gave the Screen Actors Guild legitimacy, but they may not have had the courage to leave the Academy and come together, if Karloff hadn't set the example. Two months into his career as a union organizer, Karloff left for Arizona, to shoot the World War I film The Lost Patrol for director John Ford. This would be a commercial hit, but few films of 1933 were as successful as Karloff's next picture, The House of Rothschild, in which he played the anti-Semitic antagonist to the family of Jewish bankers. Having proven his worth outside the gates of Universal City, the Lemleys now begged Boris to come back they offered him an enormous salary of $7,500 for four weeks of work on the first film to pit him opposite his presumed rival, Bela Lugosi, The Black Cat. This film, which we'll talk about extensively next week, was such success that it convinced Universal the time was right to bring back Frankenstein. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small, When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, Or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. Bride of Frankenstein would be considered not just the masterpiece of Whale and Karloff's respective careers, but also the high point of this wave of horror movies. It articulates the least controversial moral thesis of any 1930s horror movie: that the living should not try to manipulate the dead in the most potentially controversial way. The monster who had wrecked havoc in the first film here becomes a fully sympathetic, even heartbreaking character, who is shown to lash out violently, only in fearful self-protection. The monster is, in fact, the hero of the sequel. Much had changed in the four years between Frankenstein productions. Karloff was now so valuable to the project that his salary was raised to an astounding $12,500 per week. Because of the changes he had fought for through the Screen Actors Guild, Karloff couldn't be forced to work for longer than 12 hours at a time, and he spent about half of that just getting his makeup on in the morning. He'd usually arrive at the studio at 6 a.m. and would be in the makeup room and costume trailer until lunch, With breaks and time allotted for makeup removal factored in, on a good day, Whale was only able to work with his star for four or five hours. And yet, there was still hardship for Karloff. While shooting the monster's first scene in the sequel, he had fallen and dislocated his hip, resulting in an injury that would nag at him for years. Whale had been coaxed into making the sequel after his Invisible Man film had proven to be another monster hit. But Whale was wary of repeating himself, and so with Bride of Frankenstein, he set out to challenge himself to make a film like none other he or anyone else had ever made. To that end, the film began with a quasi-comic, tongue-in-cheek prologue, in which Mary Shelley tells her husband, Percy Shelley, and friend Lloyd Byron, that Frankenstein's story didn't end with the fire at the mill that seemed to kill off the monster in the first film. As Mary, who is played by Elsa Lanchester, begins to tell the rest of the story, Whale then flashes to the fire and shows that the monster cheated death. The monster plods through the countryside, attempting to evade the mobs that want to kill him, and ends up getting his first lessons in human compassion. From an old blind hermit who can't see what the monster looks like and doesn't judge him. He's just happy to have the companionship.
1: Perhaps, perhaps you're afflicted too. I cannot see and you cannot speak. Is that it? <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying, put your hand on my shoulder. That is good. No, Uh, uh. you stay here. I'll get you some food. Uh, uh. Uh, uh. We shall be friends. I have prayed many times for God to send me a friend. It's very lonely here, and it's been a long time since any human being came into this hut. I shall look after you, and you will comfort me.
0: The Blind Man's compassion and Karloff's eager, grateful response to it are equally startling in a film series that, to this point has depicted almost zero acts of human connection or kindness. Through his time with the blind man, the monster acquires language skills, as well as a taste for wine. Both of which come in handy when he encounters Dr. Pretorius, Dr. Frankenstein's demented, diabolical mentor. Pretorius is now blackmailing Frankenstein into crafting a body in which to house Pretorius's own invention, an artificial brain.
1: you make man like me? No, woman, friend for you. Woman, friend, yes, I want friend like me. I think you can be very useful. And you will add a little force to the argument, if necessary. Do you know who Henry Frankenstein is, and who you are? Yes, I know. Made me from dead. I love dead. Hate living. You're wise in your generation.
0: The monster desperately wants a female friend like him but he is also wise to be wary of any scheme involving Henry Frankenstein. The Bride, also played by Lanchester, is made and brought to life, but all doesn't go as planned. As scared as the monster was when first brought to life, the Bride is doubly terrified when, in her first moments as a corporeal being, she's creeped on by the walking corpse collage to whom she's been unwillingly betrothed.
1: She hates me. Like others.
0: Karloff's performance was made more challenging by the fact that Whale decreed that in this film, the monster would talk. Karloff was against this, calling the decision,
2: Stupid. If the monster had any impact or charm, it was because he was inarticulate.
0: But Karloff wasn't the kind of actor who pushed back against a director. He was the kind of actor who did what he was asked to do and then went home and puttered in his garden with one eye on the cricket scores until the next time he needed to work. And in the end, Karloff was wrong. Bride of Frankenstein is the most sophisticated horror film made in Hollywood to that point, and the complicated emotions it inspires have much to do with Karloff's articulation of the monster's thoughts and desires. In the film's deeply disturbing and moving, almost symphonic climax, the monster gets the final, powerful word. Right before he pulls a lever, that will touch off explosives that will destroy Frankenstein's lab, his monster, and the bride once and for all. Or at least until the next sequel.
1: You stay. We belong dead. Ah! ah.
0: By the late 1930s, the bloom was wearing off the horror film Rose. In 1936, while Bela was scraping by playing supporting parts in minor Universal films and starring in the cut-rate Poverty Rose serial Shadow of Chinatown, Karloff gave perhaps his best non-Frankenstein performance of the decade, in a Warner Brothers film that smartly bridged the gap between the horror genre that seemed to be waning and the socially conscious crime films that would become as much WB's studio signature as monster movies were for Universal. The Walking Dead, directed by Michael Curtiz, six years before Casablanca, featured Karloff as a man wrongly convicted and executed for a crime he didn't commit, who was immediately brought back to life by a couple of scientists who feel guilty for not sooner offering up evidence that would have exonerated him. What results is an odd morality play, inverting Frankenstein. Brought back to life, Karloff's Elman is palsied and, at first, basically catatonic. In his first scene after the reanimation, Karloff's performance is so similar to Kyle McLaughlin's as Dougie in Twin Peaks' The Return, that I would be shocked if David Lynch hadn't meant to reference this movie. Though unable to remember anything about his previous life or the experience of having been dead, Elman now has a sixth sense, which allows him to zero in on the gangsters who framed him for the crime and to use his eyes to scare them and overwhelm them with guilt until they stumble into accidental suicides. At the end of the movie, Elman begins hanging out at a cemetery. Like the monster, he believes he belongs dead. And eventually he gets his wish. Warner Brothers actually marketed this film as a parable against capital punishment. The film merged the sci-fi elements of resurrection and the morally dubious proposition of violating the line between life and death into a film that, much like many Warner Brothers crime films, took place in a recognizable, modern urban world, in which corruption is rampant, and anything supernatural or super-scientific is overwhelmed by the mandate that crime must not pay. After shooting The Walking Dead, Karloff went to England to make two films. When he returned to the States in the fall of 1936 he found that the horror movie, as a genre, had essentially been cancelled. The most recent films hadn't been the cultural or financial juggernauts that the first films in the trend had been. Bride of Frankenstein, for instance, had made money, but not as much money as the original, which had been the top-grossing film of any kind of its year. Bride of Frankenstein was only the third highest grossing film of its year, and it was the only horror film on the top 10 of 1935. There would be zero horror films amongst the top 20 grossers the following year. As sound film had matured over the course of the 1930s, audiences were flocking to historical epics like Mutiny on the Bounty and sophisticated musicals like Top Hat escapism at the midpoint of the Great Depression looked like Ginger Rogers swirling across a big white dance floor in chiffon or Clark Gable cockwalking through the rubble of the San Francisco earthquake while operetta diva Jeanette MacDonald belted out a song. It wasn't gothic fantasy about mad scientists and mythic monsters. After oversaturating the market for nearly half a decade horror movie producers had to face the fact that audiences had burned out on their offerings, at least for the time being. And then there was the question of censorship. The U.S. censors, the Hayes office, had actually gone pretty easy on horror movies, in part because films like Frankenstein and Dracula had avoided grotesque depictions of death and had always punished moral bad actors in the end. But after outright banning Island of Lost Souls, an adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau featuring a fourth-billed Bela Lugosi as the leader of a pack of Wolfmen, the British Board of Film Censors declared that they would slap all horror movies, regardless of their content or execution, with an H-certificate, which would ban all ticket buyers under the age of 16. This move proved to be such a large roadblock to profits for the U.S. studios that it effectively convinced them to temporarily halt production of horror movies. Like Lugosi, Karloff found himself reduced to the yellowface basement. First, he accepted a red herring role in a Charlie Chan picture, and then he started a run of roles that had him playing Chinese. First, as a warlord in a film called West of Shanghai. And then, Poverty Row studio Monogram hired him to appear in a Charlie Chan knockoff serial as the mysterious Mr. Wong. Karloff's road back from this racist pattern came thanks to a renewed interest in him and Lugosi's original monster roles, via revivals, which led to the two appearing together in Karloff's final film in which he played the monster, Son of Frankenstein, which we'll talk about next week after Son of Frankenstein, Karloff announced he was giving up playing the monster. By that third film, as he later put it,
2: There was not much left in the character of the monster to be developed. I saw that from here on, he would become rather an oafish prop, so to speak, in the last act or something like that, without any great stature.
0: But the monster was not done with Karloff. When Universal attempted to revive the franchise in the wake of the success of The Wolfman, the role of the monster was handed over to, you guessed it, Lon Chaney Jr., who would also replace Karloff as the mummy in The Mummy's Tomb that same year. Released in 1942, the year of Mrs. Miniver and The Road to Morocco, Ghost of Frankenstein didn't have much impact. Perhaps understanding that it was best to limit Chaney, an actor of limited talents, to just one monster, when Universal made their next Frankenstein movie the next year, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, they had Chaney play the Wolfman in it, and Bela Lugosi, who had been playing the assistant Igor in the last two Frankenstein installments, was now the monster. A year after that, Universal made House of Frankenstein, for which they abandoned Lugosi and cast Glenn Strange as the monster. They also hired Karloff to tutor the new actor, while he played the mad scientist. A decade and a half passed, and Karloff did other things, some of which we'll talk about in later episodes— Then, in 1958, he was offered $25,000 to return to the world of the monster by playing Dr. Frankenstein's grandson in Frankenstein 1970, a CinemaScope meta-sequel directed by Howard W. Koch, a former Universal office boy who would later run Paramount.
3: This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on Mubi is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride.
0: Intentionally writing a very thin and very 1950s line between disarming light comedy and terror, Frankenstein 1970 casts Karloff as Baron Victor von Frankenstein, the last living Frankenstein, an old man living in his family's old German castle, selling off valuables to survive. He allows an American television crew to camp out at his house to film a program about his family's legacy. It's a legacy that the Baron feels like he has failed. He talks of having been forced to serve as a surgeon by the Nazis at Belsen. Resisting their orders, he was tortured and left disfigured and sterilized, rendering him the last of the family line. Though presenting this Frankenstein's drive to make a man in his lab as the only way to continue his bloodline... Frankenstein 1970 made me aware of the inherent subtext about misogyny to every Frankenstein story that I had never picked up on before. The whole franchise is about men seeking to control procreation and inventing ways to exclude women from the process. That said, all Frankenstein movies are pretty consistent in telling us that men are the real monsters, and this movie also has two major moments of sexual harassment, in which two separate men in power try to pressure two separate female underlings to have sex with them, and these scenes put the sympathy squarely with the women. Karloff's Baron is roped into appearing in the American TV show, but instead of saying the lines written for him, he gives an off-script monologue about his family's history
1: i frankenstein began my work in the year 1740 a.d with all good intentions and humane thoughts to the high purpose of probing the secrets of life itself with but one end the betterment of mankind So wrote my celebrated ancestor. But first he, he had to learn how flesh was made. He had to discover the art of transplanting vital organs from human beings into his creature and knitting them together until they had all the attributes of God inspired birth. Of course, I must admit that perhaps he was not too scrupulous about where he got his raw material. But after 17 years, his labors were at last rewarded. He created A living man. But to his horror, what did he discover? But that his creation was a monster, hideous, foul. Its evil brain with but one thought, that of survival. In order to survive, it killed and killed and killed again. Until it became the very image of that devil incarnate, then he realized what he had created. He must kill, but because he was the creator, he could not bring himself to destroy it.
0: His monologue about the evil of the creature. Doesn't ring true with what we've seen in previous movies, but his description of his ancestors' hubris and inability to learn lessons from their failures does. In tradition for Frankenstein men, he becomes obsessed with his own godlike ability to violate the rules of life and death, taking the shell of his grandfather's creation, inserting into it his faithful butler's brain, killing off the visiting movie folk one by one to obtain the finishing touches for a new monster and animating it with the help of an atomic reactor. The monster couldn't look like the monster Karloff had played because this movie was being made by an independent studio and that would violate Universal's copyright. The new monster clomps around the castle wrapped in futuristic bandages that look less like they're protecting the sutures between body parts, and more like he's outfitted to walk on the moon. If it didn't necessarily have the shock value of the original monster, it had something. Between making this new Dr. Frankenstein a concentration camp survivor and having him casually use the money given to him by the Hollywood folk to purchase atomic energy, Frankenstein 1970 subtly updates the old story for a modern-day real world in which real historical events have real impact on the mythic incident, a change which Karloff gets to wink at when his house guests begin to rightly suspect that there's a monster among them.
1: I'm sorry, (sighs) My dear inspector, you must make allowances for these show people. They, They live in a world of fanciful dreams hidden doors sliding panels even sudden disappearances the nonsense of things that don't exist world of make-believe exactly what i said to myself "Howbound? they will stop at nothing at all to get their names in the newspapers they might even go so far as to disappear eh
0: karloff's co-stars believed that the old man had given a performance that was just too much too over the top that like the character he played, he was an old man stuck in the ways of another time. But over the last decade of Karloff's life, that criticism would prove to be inaccurate. Just as Baron Victor Von Frankenstein went out embracing the Atomic Age, Karloff would say goodbye to his Hollywood career with a film that was as of the moment and incendiary as it got. But that is a story for the end of our series. If you watch Frankenstein 1970, you may notice that the movie within the movie that we see being filmed at the beginning looks like a parody of the movies Bela Lugosi had made a few years earlier with Ed Wood. By the time Frankenstein 1970 was made, Bela was dead. Next week, we will bring him back to life as we discuss the collaborations between Bela and Boris. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editors are Jacob Smith and Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guest, Patton Oswalt, who played Boris Karloff. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can find us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. For more information about this episode and other episodes, Please go to our website. You must remember There you'll find show notes, which include lists of sources for each episode, music credits, and more. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then. Won't you? Good night.
2: Best living or dead, hands down, huh? Let's talk more here, right now, huh? And my eyes more red than the devil is. And about to take it to another level, bitch. Standing who you gonna get? Ain't nobody cold as this. Do the rap and a track. Triple, double, no assist. And my only focus is staying on some bogus shit. Arguing with my older bitch, acting like I owe a shit. I heard the beat, the same raps
1: that get a track pain. Mark the chain.